Listen to At The Letters ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, and welcome to At The Letters, off-season edition of the podcast here. Ben Nicholson-Smith with you, along with Shai Davidi on At The Letters, presented by Miller Lite, the original light beer. Shai, you're here again, talking more baseball with us. Thanks for being here on At The Letters. Yeah, no problem. Pitch hitter extraordinaire. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think you might be uh, beyond the pinch hitting realm <laughs> into the everyday lineup. Um, definitely a key contributor here on ATL. And we got a, actually a lot to get to. Um, this episode is basically going to be geared around looking ahead and looking at what the Blue Jays can do. We have outlined some targets that we think the Jays should at least have on their radar, ranging from the very top of the market all the way down to some bargain plays, some trade candidates. So we're going to walk through all of that in the course of this episode. That's basically going to be the episode, is Shy and I talking about some targets. So excited for that. Yeah, it's going to be great. Like... It's going to be great when people are throwing this back at us come <laughs> spring training in February. Like, see how wrong you guys were? Oh, yeah. I mean, it it is inevitable. I, I'm not sure um, how many times I mentioned that I thought the Jays were going to try to get, you know, a David Robertson or a Drew Smiley ahead of the trade <laughs> deadline this year. Never happened. Uh, to be fair, they tried on David Robertson. They were right there at the end and they, they thought that they had a good shot at that. So at least that, that was on the right track. Well, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. I think that... Um, Part of this business that we're in is just being wrong a lot of the time, (laughs) and uh, I'm okay with that. I think that that's something that if you learn to embrace it, it can be a lot of fun. So I'm prepared to be wrong many times over, but we'll attempt to nail down some really interesting targets. And I do, I mean, I'm taking this exercise seriously. I'm not, I'm not throwing names out there that, you know, just for the sake of throwing names out there, we've got some good ones. But first, we do actually have a little bit of Jay's news shy. So let's start there. Vlad Guerrero Jr., gold glove winner. I mean, Two, three years ago, this might have been hard to imagine. It was, although there were people who were saying at the time, hey, give this some runway because this is where it's going to end. And I was able to get in touch with uh, Blue Jays third base coach Louis Rivera after the news came out. And uh, Louis had put in a lot of the work with Vlad and helping him coach there. Uh, Obviously, Danny Solano, Gil Kim, also big parts of uh, Vladimir Guerrero's progression. But It was interesting because Louis Rivera said that one of the first times they got on the field together, he said to Vlad, I'm not BSing you. You can win a gold glove if you play first base the way you play third base. You're going to have to put in the work. You're going to have to get there. But that's where this is going to get. And Guerrero's confidence steadily built, obviously his abilities and his sense of the position. You know, little things from, you know, how far he could be uh, ranging to his right to, you know, uh, flipping to the pitcher, the way he was receiving throws, the way he picked balls in the dirt, all that made massive jumps. And uh, Rivera said that when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. got to spring training this year, said to him, I'm going to win a gold glove. <laughs> and Rivera was like, well, all right, well, let's see. Let's see what happens. And he went out and did it. So uh, good for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Obviously a very important point for the Blue Jays uh, because I feel like first base defense kind of gets overlooked there or it's like us, oh, whatever, throw out a, throw out a dude who can hit. doesn't matter about defense at first, but 
I actually think defense at first is far more important than people let it on. And it's really valuable yeah. when you have a plus defender there. Uh, and I think we saw that play out over the course of the year. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's it's really interesting to think about these things, even on a more granular level too, right? Because playing first base is, it has these specific demands of you. And, you know, Vladdy, he's always had the arm. He's got a really good throwing arm. But of course, arm at first base isn't even really a thing you know that often sometimes it'll it'll matter but he's gotten so much better at going down the right field line for pop-ups he's he's very very good at that and he used to actually be quite bad at that so he's gotten way better in that respect I think his decision making when it comes to going should he go to his right to try to get a ball has gotten way better compared to when he first started playing the position and if I you know, not to not to nitpick at all because he's totally deserving. I think this is a great um, you know accomplishment for Vlad Jr. and I think he's deserving. I think there's if there's one area that he could probably improve in, it might be flips to the pitcher. That's probably what I would identify it. I think that's probably an experience thing. So honestly, as the Jays move ahead here with Vladdy, I tend to think that they do have legitimately one of the better defensive first basemen in the league. Former Blue Jays spent some time back in 2018 with the Jays. Chapman, the big stretch for Vladdy at the other end, and they get him. To record the out over at first base, use the bag to push off on, but keep that spike on there. What a play. Look at that. Look at the stretch. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I I would agree with that. And I do think that there's something, or one point of emphasis for the Blue Jays with him is kind of saying, both to him and pitchers, it's like, what can we do to make the job easier for both of you guys? How do we clear up that process. And I think there were times where you saw Guerrero make great flips. And then there were times where maybe he was a bit aggressive. And maybe that part of that is just, you know, him tailoring the arm a little bit because he can just put so much on the ball. But we're definitely nitpicking. And, yeah. you know, you, you mentioned, and it's it's true that for the most part, you don't really need much of a throwing arm at first base. It's not often. But the fact that he can do it and the way he's able to make throws to second base to get lead runners and the confidence with which he makes those throws uh, at times when he throws across the diamond to third base, if he's trying to get a runner who's maybe cheating a little bit, relays from the outfield on occasion, you see times where that arm makes a difference. Without a doubt, that's that's for sure. Now, at third base, the Jays had a tremendous defender, Matt Chapman, one of the best defenders I've probably ever seen play third base on a regular basis and the gold glove winner at third was Ramon Arias of the Baltimore Orioles I mean look I I didn't watch every Orioles game I watched a lot of them Um, and Arias is very good this is I'm I'm totally biased here right because I saw so much of Matt Chapman I didn't see a ton of Arias (laughs) well I mean from that biased viewpoint I can't help but think that Matt Chapman should have been the winner Play by Chapman gets to his feet, throws across the diamond, and he saves a run for sure. Matt Chapman, one of the best fielding third basemen in all baseball, three-time Gold Glover, makes a Gold Glove play right here with two outs. Hot shot, one hopper down. The yes, third. and what's interesting to me, and I have to do a little bit more work on this, but I can't remember many instances where the defensive metrics on someone are so in opposition to what I watched over the course of the season. And 
how nerdy do you want to get here? I, I kind of dove into a little bit about how the gold glove voting works and into the metric, the Sabre Defensive Index metric that is 25% of the total points for the gold glove candidates. And that itself is an aggregation of several different defensive metrics to create one number. But the gap there was so wide between Arias and Matt Chapman that I think that's where it, it overtook whatever gap Chapman may have had, and I don't know that he did, but may have had in the voting amongst uh, managers and coaches, which is where seventy, but roughly 75% of the total score. But there was a massive year-over-year drop for Matt Chapman in that SDI where the number was about eight in 2021, and it dropped to just above zero this past season. And again, I don't have a good grasp on the frame and how that's measured exactly and how the different metrics that are involved are weighted and things of that nature. But it just seemed to me that from what I witnessed on an everyday basis and same same for you, Ben, I think you feel the same way. It's just that was a lot better than how it was represented in the multiple defensive metrics. And look, maybe it's just comparatively what Matt Chapman gave the Blue Jays was just such a major jump over the 2021 defense that we saw at third base that maybe our eyes are deceiving us a little bit or we're making the impression a little bit I guess maybe just our, we're being just tricked into thinking it's so much better because the starting point was so much lower in 2021, but I'm having trouble reconciling why what I saw with my eyes is not being reflective in the metrics. And, you know, I, th- I think in a lot of ways, to me, it feels like Chapman was robbed. And I've heard from a couple different people uh, that the Blue Jays internal defensive metrics had Chapman atop the league. Uh, but that was not reflected in what's out there publicly. And uh, and and that gap for me is very difficult to reconcile. Yeah. And I mean, players can have career years defensively as well as offensively. And maybe Urias did. Maybe that's what happened with the Orioles. And, and good for him if so. He's a very skilled player as well. At, at the same time, like as, as you move forward on any given day, if you had the choice of who you're going to start at third base... I just find it hard to believe that you wouldn't take Matt Chapman if that option was there for you. Again, looking at the tools and the consistency with which he reaches the top of his potential, it's incredible. I mean, his arm strength is elite. His decision-making is elite. His ability to come in and get a ball or go back and get a pop-up, elite. His lateral range is at least good. I mean, you're talking about... an elite third baseman in almost every possible respect. And to me, especially the arm strength and consistency from various angles in different situations, regardless of the stakes, situation, he's an amazing defender. Yeah, and I'll I'll put it in a bit of a different way too, Ben. It's just that baseline is so high. Like his average play is, I don't know how many percentage points above the league average, but he does everything so well, so consistently. It's such a min- minimal amount of errors. Uh, I could have this ro- wrong, but I think it's like four or five over the entire season. I should look that up and I will look that up in a minute. But the level of consistency is just so high. And that to me is such a value because it's like, it's not just that he makes the plays, he routinely makes plays that take away hits. And when you're putting together a team, 
I mean, that's exactly what you want. A hundred percent. He is impressive. And also under contract for the Blue Jays for 2023, at least. So that's a very good thing as they move forward. Don't have to worry about third base. Don't have to worry about first base. They do have a lot of other questions. So let's get to those. This is, as we said off the top, how we want to spend most of the episode today. So Shai, you and I kind of divided things up into four categories, I guess you would say, as far as potential acquisitions. So we're going to run through each of those. And we're going to start at the top. The elite category that we set up here is one that the Jays have shopped in each of the last three off seasons with Ryu, with George Springer, with Kevin Gosman. So they've certainly been in that territory. We define that as uh, an outlay of cash of $80 million or more in total and or $20 million per year on an AAV. So if you're spending $20 million on a on a one-year deal, that still counts as an elite player in this. Or, of course, over $80 million. Then you have your mid-range, which we've defined as between 10 and 80 total uh, commitment. You have your bargain value play category, which we've defined as up to $10 million in total guaranteed money. And then we've got trades. So those are the four categories. Anyone who's listening... Love to hear your ideas as well, of course. Um, and we'll have lots of time. This is not meant to be an exhaustive list. We're not saying these are the only players that the Blue Jays should pursue by any stretch. Any other caveats, Shy, that I'm missing, <laughs> just so we're not you know, setting ourselves up for too many angry tweets? Right. And this is more, uh, we're not saying that these are what is the targets that the Blue Jays are going to go after. This is These are just scenarios that we could see happening. We don't want anybody to take this as saying this is the definitive Blue Jays plan or anything along those lines. We're just, we're just spitballing a little bit about sort of what we potentially do in the Blue Jays' shoes. Exactly. That's a good point. I think, too, like there's some aspect of, okay, we want to tether this to reality. I do not see the Blue Jays signing Aaron Judge. Now, if they do, that would be great. He is a phenomenal player. He would fit in this lineup as he would fit in any lineup. I'm just not going there. So that's fine. If he's on your list, that's great. For anyone listening, he's a great player, obviously. But So it's an attempt to kind of tether this to what could be realistic for the Blue Jays and what their needs are. And in the case of the trades, what they have as far as surplus, as far as potential ammunition to make some trades. So let's dive right in, Shai, and let's start at the top um, with that elite category. Again, this is one that the Jays have shopped in pretty consistently for the last few years, so we cannot rule them out by any stretch. If they are going to be in that territory of spending big money, where do you see a fit for this team? All right. So before we jump into that, just to clarify, it was five errors this season for Matt Chapman. Nice. Uh, and that's a tremendous season. Second, I, before we dive into that specific topic, I just want to kind of do like a, a broad brushstrokes discussion of the Blue Jays payroll, yes. sort of where they're at and explain a little bit why I don't think they're going to be too involved in the upper level of the market. So if you're just looking at the way things are right now, the Blue Jays under the assumption that they're going to be picking up the $3 million option on Anthony Bass. They're going to have 10 players with guaranteed deals for 2023, totaling roughly $120 million. So that's the starting point. Next, if they bring everyone back, and there's certainly going to be some opportunities for them to non-tender some players, and Ben, we can maybe dive into that a little bit Mm -hmm. after, but they've got 13 players eligible for arbitration. 
And in 2022, those players cost the Blue Jays roughly $35 million. And they're projected to rise to about $62 million next year. Right. And the majority of that money is tied up in boosts for Bo Bichette, Jordan Romano, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Teoscar Hernandez. So that is significant inflation coming within the roster. And for them to add another big contract in excess of $20 million for one player, you know, that's going to shoot their payroll into ranges that we haven't seen before. Now, is that possible? Certainly possible. And we don't know yet how aggressive the Blue Jays are going to be. And one thing that we've seen from them in recent years is that regardless of their situation, they have been involved to some extent whenever there's been a player of elite talent. And that's something that the Blue Jays feel that they need to do on a consistent basis. So even think back to a few years ago when Garrett Cole was a free agent uh, and the Blue Jays were just at the beginning of their sort of build up after the teardown, they were asking around about Garrett Cole. They were trying to get involved there and it wasn't going to be a fit. He certainly seemed locked into either one of the, uh, one of the LA teams or New York, but you know, they try to get in there. So whenever there is an elite talent, we'll see the Blue Jays check in. I'm sure that they will check in on uh, Jacob deGrom, on on Aaron Judge, on everyone at the top of the market. But the one scenario I think the Blue Jays may consider is one of the elite shortstops. All right. Now, whether that's Let's hear it. Uh, a Dansby Swanson or Carlos Correa, who I think maybe ends up in a stratosphere above some of the other guys that maybe makes it a bit more difficult. Trey Turner, I think Xander Bogarts is going to end up back in Boston. So I'm not sure that there's going to be much of an opportunity there. But if you're looking at ways you can impact your big league team a significant way, both offensively and defensively, and this is difficult and I'm not, I'm not advocating for this because I'm, I'm definitely in the minority on this one. I think, feel like, but I'm comfortable, more than comfortable with Bo Bichette at shortstop. And I think he's going to continue to get better there. And I'm fine with the Blue Jays handing him the keys there and saying, you're our guy. But I can see a scenario where it's like, well, we can get major impact if we get an elite shortstop and then move Bo Bichette at second base. And then we have an elite combination right up the middle there. That to me is an interesting possibility. And for that to happen, I do think the Blue Jays would have to move a significant contract from their roster uh, this year. I think the the better opportunity for them to make this kind of spend is going to be after 2023 when Hyunjin Ryu and if they end up being on the team in 2023, uh, Teoscar Hernandez, Lourdes Gurriel Jr. uh, come off the books. So there's not going to be significant money coming off the books this year. That's going to happen the year after. But to me, that's an interesting way for them to make the everyday group significantly better and also improve defensively, which should, in theory, help your pitching staff as well. If they were to sign like a Trey Turner, Correa type player, they could have the best lineup in baseball. I mean, they they could anyway, um, just because they have such a strong group, but it could be the best lineup in baseball. And, you know, when you're talking about finding pathways to get to the postseason, to win in the postseason, having a dominant lineup, that's a great way to go. And so you have to be open to that if you're the Jays. Now, Bogarts, 
probably returning to Boston. Just that's not me reporting anything. That's just the vibe. So agreed. Yeah. So then you're looking at Swanson. I'm not as sold on. I think he's going to be a good player for the next five years. I don't know that, you know, Swanson is the one you go all out for. Correa, really interesting. You know, he'd be tremendous. Again, the cost is a, is a question. And, and Trey Turner, I mean, if Turner is, let's say it's, what, 36 million times eight years? Does he get nine years? Is it seven? Like, let's say it's 36 times eight. That's You're approaching $300 million. That's a big, big outlay of cash. So like you say, then you start getting into these things where it's like, do you need some more creativity? And, you know, tied to your comments going into this, setting up the Jays' big picture financial situation, at what point do the Jays surpass $200 million in payroll for the first time in franchise history? I mean, that's probably something that they're going to have to do in the next few years here. How soon that happens is a really interesting question. Yeah, and and I do think that's coming. And again, I do think these contracts for the players that we're just discussing are going to be prohibitive. And, you know, the Jays really liked Corey Seager last year, but I don't think they liked him at where that contract ended up. And my guess is that this is pro- that's probably going to play out this way, but I'm sure the Blue Jays are going to check in and have that discussion and at least go through that exercise to explore that possibility because it is an interesting one. And like you said, it just makes the lineup so dynamic. There's an impact defensively. Uh, you know, you give Santiago Espinal a chance to be a super utility player uh, and that that's an elite super utility player if that's what he becomes. Uh, there are a number of spin-off benefits to that that impact across the roster. And if you're looking at, at the top of the market, I think that's one area that you can certainly veer into. Uh, but I do think that, Ben, you've got a bit of a different idea for the, the, this this level of spend. I do. I do have a different idea. I, I first want to, I'm almost like, as I'm saying this, correcting myself on the Trey Turner, because I'm like, could Trey Turner actually get like way more than 300 million? Like maybe he will. And the Seeger thing, that's so interesting because, you know, I, I, my impression last year, and I've almost, I'd almost forgotten this. My impression on Seeger was like, he was probably their number one target. Um, mm-hmm. Last year, which is so, or, or the not not necessarily target, but I think he was their number one wish, their number one yeah. wish, if everything played out, which is telling. So, okay, my candidate, you you've set it up for me here. So, I'm going to say Justin Verlander, and I've said this, I've said this a couple of places before. They went after him last off season as well, mm-hmm. and had interest. I think it would require a much bigger commitment than Verlander got last year because he obviously is probably going to win the Cy Young this year had an amazing season I know he's faltered in the playoffs at times this season but he's a great pitcher with great stuff and you want him on your staff he would be an ace that would be incredible so the commitment would be significant is that 80 million over two years maybe a five million dollar vesting option for 2025 something like that maybe it's you know AAV certainly would have to approach 40 million I would think maybe surpass 40 million to get Verlander's attention. But, you know, I can all, almost picture the recruitment video, right? You've got the the no hitters, you're showing it to Verlander, his celebrations in Toronto. And then you go, oh, the next chapter is is you in this team. You have some like CGI Verlander in a Blue Jays uniform celebrating with Vlad and, you know, try to get his attention that way. So I think that, um, you know, that's to me, Justin Verlander, Toronto Blue Jay, like your team is a lot better if he's at the top of your rotation. 
Yeah, and you see Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman and Jose Barrios in that recruitment video too, saying, come yeah. join us and look at what we could do together. Uh, and that would be an unbelievable staff. Uh, and you know, I like that thought because I do think if you're not going to, you know, just go gangbusters on your lineup, then, you know, do it in your rotation. And we're seeing how velocity plays in this postseason. Justin Verlander is still throwing the crap out of the baseball. He is still able to get swing and miss at an elite level. He's still able to dominate lineups. And I do think that the Blue Jays are comfortable with high AAV short-term deals. And the fact that you can get creative a little bit over the next couple of years that, you know, if you're going to do it over two years, you can maybe backload a little bit into 2024 without negatively impact 25 and beyond too much. That's certainly an interesting way for them to get creative and a way for them to shop in that level of the market or that tier of the market and make a significant upgrade to their roster. Well, I think those are some some pretty interesting names between Verlander and one of the big shortstops. We're off to a really good start here on ATL. <laughs> Just spending the Jays' money. This is this is great. All right, let's get to the mid tier because that's interesting too. Um, so this we defined as somewhere between ten million and. I guess 79 million in total guarantee. There will be a lot of really good free agents that sign in this tier. I mean, you're going to see just impact players that sign in this tier. And there will also be players that are just total, you know, nothings that sign for this amount of money. So where do you want to begin in this tier, Shai? So I'm going to say that I feel like this is a tier where the Blue Jays are going to perhaps be the most active or do most of their work essentially here and in the value play category. And I'm going to focus on starting pitching to start with here because uh, I think the Jays are going to be looking for two starting pitchers. And if they're going to do it via free agency, it feels like to me that they get one guy from the middle tier category and then maybe they do one starting pitcher in the value play category and have him compete with, say, Mitch White and Yusei Kikuchi for the final spot in the rotation with the other two who end up on the outside looking in, providing some depth there. Uh, so there are a lot of names. I'm going to focus on three of them in the middle tier. One is bringing back Ross Stripling. I mean, you know exactly what he is and obviously a great fit for the team, has made a major jump. And I was talking to someone recently, and they made a really good point about Ross Stripling, is that when you look at the way pitchers are being used in the playoffs, that some teams may look a bit more favorably at Ross Stripling's ability to move from the bullpen to the starting rotation and back seamlessly, especially because that'll give you more options in the postseason and that he can adapt immediately to those roles. So not only is he a great fit for you in multiple ways for the regular season, but he's also maybe a bit better positioned to be a postseason weapon for clubs as well. So I think that certainly that's a conversation starter immediately. But I think the competition for him is going to be incredibly fierce because he's going to be he's going to come in at a price point that he's going to attract both contenders, teams on the rise, 
anybody who's looking for a good starting pitcher is probably going to be able to afford Ross Stripling. And I think that's going to make him extremely popular uh, this offseason. Then on the upper end of the middle tier, Jameson Tyon. I mean, this is a nice. guy who's had success in the American League East, uh, a guy who uh, over the past couple of years has shown that he can take the ball on a consistent basis, haul some innings, competes really well, uh, has got uh, a bit of Canadian heritage, has pitched for Team Canada, the World Baseball Classic. There are some potential fits there. I think he's an interesting guy. I feel like he ends up a little bit beyond our how they'd want to budget that out. Yeah, because he could be you know that might be a three or four year deal like it might be a, mm-hmm. i don't know is that 50 60 million like it's not going to be a small deal i would think. no exactly so he'd be great to put another stable piece into that rotation a guy who you know is going to consistently be able to keep your team in ball games and give that offense a chance to to do its work and then on, on the a bit of a lower end of the middle tier is a guy who we're seemingly talking about to the Blue Jays every offseason, Jay Coda Rizzi. Another guy who could just be consistent and give your your team a chance to win five, six innings. He's essentially a, a modern-day pitcher with the way bullpens are constructed. And this is the, the type of spend that wouldn't overwhelm your budget and still allow you to address some other issues around your roster. I like it. So you've got Stripling, Tyone, Odorizzi. Tyone probably carries a QO with him, or at least there's a good chance. Stripling, probably not. Odorizzi, certainly not. Is that fair to say? It's interesting. I'm I'm vacillating on the QO for, for Tyon, because if, if I'm the Yankees, and I know that the judge situation is going to be viewed in isolation, but are you willing to risk 19.5 for Tyon when... You know, you may need some of that money for Aaron Judge, it's and you Yankees. still have, and you still have other. I agree, but <laughs> I mean, the Yankees haven't been run like the Yankees of old. Yeah. I know we we say they're the Yankees, but I think we have to look at the way that they've behaved in recent yep. years. And if they were the Yankees of old, there's no chance that Judge would be going to free agency right now. No. Judge would have been done. So, you know, I think for all those reasons, we have to sort of view the Yankees as a team that's still able to spend significant amounts of money, but is doing it with a level of discipline to their action. And so, you know, I'm not sure that Jameson Tyon at 19.5 for one year fits with the Yankees when they're trying to resign Aaron Judge and still trying to address a number of other issues around the roster. Well, I think that's I think that's very fair. So I'm going to land on a pitcher for this um, tier myself. I want to throw a couple honorable mentions out as well um, because I really like this tier. There's so much to be found in this tier mm-hmm. of, um, of free agent spending. And if the Jays add whatever it is, two, three, four players in this tier, I mean, you can you can potentially really reinforce a ball club. So I like Jock Peterson. I think that anytime that you're talking about someone with his kind of power and particularly power against righties, obviously a left-handed hitter, kind of has at various times been a platoon bat but just crushes right-handed pitching, can play a corner outfield for you, could DH. That gives you some insurance alongside Kirk, um, alongside Lourdes, alongside Teoscar. So he can just fit in a bunch of different ways. He's used to being used in a role that's not quite every day. If there's a tough lefty, it's not going to be an issue for him to be sitting. Of course, he's going to cost a lot more than he did last offseason. Is that 24 over 2? that it takes to get Jock Peterson. It's obviously not Schwarber territory. He's kind of a Schwarber light, but 
you know, I, I really like that as a fit. It's not going to be my answer, but I like him as a fit. And I also like Chris Martin as a fit reliever uh, for the Cubs and then for the Dodgers this year. He's kind of getting a bit older into his late 30s. Um, so to me, that's probably a Daniel Bard contract. Uh, Bard was around 19 over two with the Rockies as an extension. So if I'm representing Chris Martin, that's probably what I'm looking for for him. And I think that's pretty fair. I think he'll have a lot of interest, probably get close to that. I thought about trying to sneak him in as a value play, but he's getting more than 10, I would think. So honorable mention to Chris Martin. He'd be a great addition to the Jays bullpen. But my answer is Andrew Heaney. This is someone that the Jays were after last offseason. Do you remember, were they a finalist shy? Like it was, they were pretty close. There were a bunch of teams that were right in the mix there. The Jays were among them. How exactly they ranked, that I'm not certain. But the Dodgers ended up winning that one. And I feel like the Dodgers' reputation for helping pitchers was one of the deciding factors uh, in that situation. But certainly someone that the Blue Jays had interest in and would continues to be a fit for them and someone I'm sure that they will revisit. I, I think they have to. I think they really have to because you look at what he did. And I know it was only 72 and two-thirds innings. So it's not a ton of innings, 13 starts. But he was so good with a strikeout rate above 35%, a walk rate 6%, like just elite numbers. Um, someone who can pitch you, help you get to the playoffs, and certainly someone who would be there for you in the postseason. Not to get ahead of things, I think you want to pair him, obviously, with someone who is more, quote-unquote, dependable, or at least, you know, less costly, um, and, and find ways to make sure that you have those bulk innings to get you to October. But to me... The price is going to go way up on Heaney. He had that good of a year and he finished strong. Like I almost hesitate saying this because this might look really bad, but I would be thinking about, do you offer him 42 over three? Hmm. To me, it's (laughs) It's a lot. It's an aggressive number for a guy who hasn't hauled innings. And one thing that's going to be really interesting to me and to watch us play is that the Blue Jays last year, they bet on upside and made a pretty significant financial commitment, $36 million over three years to Yusei Kikuchi because they believed they could use that stuff and hone it and turn him into Robbie Ray Light or Steven Matz Plus or however you want to describe it. And, and it didn't end up happening. And now what do you do with Yusei Kikuchi, both from how he fits your roster to the, the money that he's taking up? And it's uh, they, at least they front loaded it. So it's only 10 million a season over the next two years. So it's a bit more manageable in that way. But they went for the upside play last year and you want to be taking risks. And I don't think they should be criticized for swinging big. But when you look at where they are with the rest of the roster is that can you sacrifice a bit of upside for a bit more dependability and you know, if you're getting 80-ish elite innings from Andrew Heaney, is that as valuable as, say, getting, you know, 135, 140 more mid-range from, say, a Jake Odorizzi? Yep. And I think, ultimately, this is going to be one of those winner's curse situations, right? Because 29 GMs are going to look at whatever deal Andrew Heaney gets and probably go, oof, that's just a little more than we would have gone. Just not comfortable going there. And those are 29 reasonable individuals with strong baseball acumen and they will all probably agree that it's too much so there's risk in being the one team that goes out and gets that but 
man, I, honestly, I would be thinking hard about that one on Andrew Heaney. Yeah, I, I, look, I, I like that. I, I also really like the Jock Peterson uh, and Chris Martin as well. I, I do think both those guys fit. I, I also think the Blue Jays are going to have some opportunities in the, in the Japanese market. Uh, you think about Corey True. Senga as somebody who has a chance. You know, Nate Eovaldi is super interesting, who also fits into this category. This is a an area of the market that's going to be really rich and where there's some depth and that some of the other moves that happen in the offseason may dictate which of the bodies and they end up targeting within here. So, you know, the Blue Jays are in a position where they don't have to do things. They can be a bit more selective and a bit more creative with how they approach things. And I think because of that, there's going to be a wealth of possibility that are just going to rotate through all these different scenarios that play out like bigger picture scenarios and it's going to create some intrigue throughout the winter 100 percent. okay we will get to our value plays we will get to our trade talk and some world series talk as well but first we'll take a break and we'll come back with all of that on at the letters All right, welcome back to At The Letters, and it is time now for Major League Beer for Major League Baseball, presented by Miller Lite, the original light beer. At some point in the next week or so, we are going to see a new World Series champion crowned, and with that, every time there are some new faces to claim a World Series ring for the first time in their careers. This time, it could be Bryce Harper, could be Dusty Baker, first time as a manager, Shy. As you look beyond 2022, is there anyone who stands out to you as a player or a coach or a front office executive that really needs or, or could really benefit from adding that World Series to a resume that so far does not include one? Well, this is going to be, I guess, low-hanging fruit. but and I do, And this isn't just the player needing it. I think this is baseball needing it. Everybody needs Mike Trout in October, right? This has gone on far too long. You have the best player in the game, uh, one of the most exciting players in the game to watch, consistently not getting an opportunity in October. And you're just sort of wasting this golden opportunity to not just have an elite player celebrate in elite moments, but he's the type of guy who can help grow this game. And along those lines, Shohei Otani really comes to mind as well. You know, the two of them are obviously linked because they're angels right now. Uh, I'm sure we'll touch on Shohei Otani a little bit in our trade uh, discussion later. But, you know, that combination of players is just so important to the game of baseball to have them continually on the sidelines October after October obviously doesn't serve the angels well, doesn't serve the players well, but it also doesn't serve the industry well either. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Really, for baseball to to fully, fully take advantage of everything that Mike Trout and Shohei Otani offer, let's see it in October. Let's see it in the postseason when it really counts. I mean, that would just be so much fun to have those debates about, you know, how the Angels should use Shohei Otani um, in the postseason to see him hit a homer one day and then come out and pitch a shutout the next. I mean, he's fully, fully capable of that. And it would just take it to another level if that could happen. I'll throw a couple honorable mentions out there. Aaron Judge has not played in a World Series, has certainly not won a World Series ring to kind of cement his Yankees legacy. 
all the Yankees greats have rings, right? But not Judge. And I think Manny Machado, too, is someone who has yet to win a World Series. But you look at some of the greats in the game, some of the you know potential Hall of Famers. He's in that discussion for sure and does not yet have a ring. Yeah, I think those are great picks. And Aaron Judge, to me, is going to be such a fascinating case study this offseason. Because does he look to go back to New York and cement his legacy there and you know find a way to bring carry the Yankees back to another championship and then he's really in the pantheon of New York greats or does he just say you know what I've done my time here and you know finds finds a new home and, and carries another team into glory in October and, and how does that change the perception of his legacy obviously in New York he will be dead to people but Within the industry, does that change his perceptions? Does it change what it's like being a superstar in New York and the toll and the burden that those guys have to carry? That one's going to be really interesting on a number of different levels. Uh, and certainly Aaron Judge uh, getting to the World Series, having an opportunity to shine there is something that is also similar to, to Trout. Like You want to see the best players on those stages. Bryce Harper is a reminder of that. This October, it is fun watching the best players play in the biggest games. It's the best. Seeing Harper Homer the way he did on the first pitch that he saw and then picking up on the pitch tipping. We could do a whole podcast about that. You know, Bryce Harper is just he's it's incredible. But um, let's shift our focus back to the Toronto Blue Jays here and uh, a little bit lower in the free agent pecking order than the Aaron Judges and Bryce Harpers of the world. Let's let's focus in on some value plays here, Shai, and we've defined that as under $10 million. So this is important. I mean, you can find every season, there are really good players who sign from this tier. You can certainly find value here. You have to be good in this tier, regardless of whether you're a big market or small market team. Uh, The Jays uh, certainly tore the big market end of that, but they really need to succeed here. So who do you see as a potential target who might conceivably be available for under 10 million? So you mentioned how important it is for teams to succeed in this category. And because of the payroll issues that we discussed earlier, and especially th- those are only going to get more intense as the players get further along the arbitration scale, this category is going to become increasingly uh, vital to the Blue Jays. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I thought that they're going to get one pitcher from the mid-tier category and one starting pitcher from, from here. Uh, and, Two names I think are going to be right around the upper end of that threshold are Mike Clevenger and Corey Kluber, both some pitchers that the Blue Jays have had interest in in the past, are pretty good upside plays. They're probably pretty good bets on a one-year deal to maybe give you a little bit more value than the deal might suggest. You and I debated whether Michael Brantley ends up in this category or maybe bleeds into a little bit of the the middle tier category, another player that the Blue Jays have liked in the past, the type of patient, left-handed, on-base type of hitter that the Blue Jays could really use in this lineup. And we've heard the Blue Jays talk about trying to diversify some of the approaches in their lineup and maybe that being important for them. So Brantley could certainly fit there. So those would be my honorable mentions, but the guy that I'm going to pick as Zach Britton, because I do think the Blue Jays need that power lefty. Zach Britton is going to probably be in this price range at the Blue Jays have tended to shop for their relievers in this area uh, and have done so with uh, some success early in the 
Shapiro Atkins era and a little bit more swing and miss over the last couple of years in this regard. But Zach Britton to me is really interesting because if you can harness his stuff again, if he can come back from the injuries and just be a semblance of the guy that he's been, he doesn't have to necessarily be the clo- the elite closer, but just be a guy who neutralizes lefties and can get righties at a in those key moments. A guy who's certainly not going to be afraid of leverage. Uh, I think that's an interesting fit for the Blue Jays bullpen. Yeah, I like it. I think anytime you're talking about short-term deals for relievers, then you know that's that's something you want to explore. If they have the stuff, I like that pick. It's interesting. I mean, in this in this tier, like some of those borderline pitchers that you mentioned, Corey Kluber, for example, I think he probably is around ten million, maybe a little less, but he would help. I mean, and you can make a case that someone like Corey Kluber or my pick, who I'll reveal now, Michael Waka, you know, these guys, they're not necessarily the most exciting. They don't strike out with thirty percent of the hitters they face, like Andrew Heaney. Um, They're not out there throwing 99 miles an hour and lighting up the radar gun, appearing on Pitching Ninja every five days. But this is still a group that can give you some value. And especially when you compare it to, okay, Jameson Tyone, Jose Quintana, even Ross Stripling. Okay, these guys are are poised to get multi-year deals in free agency that are potentially very expensive. Are we that certain that Michael Waka can't be as good as Jose Quintana in 2023? Or, Or Corey Kluber, for that matter? Like... I can see scenarios where someone like Waka gives you pretty good production for 120 innings, and maybe that's you know 20 starts for your rotation that you don't have to hand to Thomas Hatch. And I think that can be a really good thing for the Jays. For sure. And look, the Blue Jays don't want a repeat of what happened to them last year, where in September, when you're playing games of most meaning, you're scrambling to have three bullpen games in 14 days uh, because you just don't have any other options. And that to me is where just that reliable four and a half ERA kind of guy who can just get you five innings, maybe six on occasion, just is so valuable in, in a way that you don't tend to appreciate. You kind of look at it and the numbers are kind of meh. But when you just are able to plug that in and it allows everybody else in the pitching staff to function as they're supposed to do and is not consistently leaving a load behind on the bullpen to carry every five days, and then that has a hangover effect in the days that follow so that when some of your relievers are in leverage, you know they're not necessarily at their best and they're trying to grind through, that to me has a ton of value and is really important. It's not something that you can totally measure in a lot of ways, but if you can just get that four and a half, four point two five ERA reliability, uh, even for five, five plus, just five plus innings every five days in your five spot in the rotation, that solves a lot of headaches for you in other ways. Do you want to do better? Of course, you want to do better, but you want to do better in a number of ways across the roster. You can't have an Uber squad unless you're going to spend three hundred million dollars like the, the the Mets and the Dodgers. And the Blue Jays aren't going to do that. So how are you going to paper over those uh, those multiple spots? And, you know, that type of player ends up fitting the bill. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a an interesting tier. And I want to go back to a couple of names that you mentioned as well. Michael Brantley, I think he would be a fit. And I think he'll be under 10. I could see him signing for like seven or eight over one. Another shot of ED favorite, Robbie Grossman. Um, you know, <laughs> I think that, you know, that and I don't know, maybe he's over 10. But again, like he didn't have a great year, but 
you know that he has good plate discipline and he can you know, stand in in a corner outfield and be a reasonably effective player, especially because we haven't really touched on this that much. But, you know, I, I do think they non-tender Roy Maltapia. So you do, in all likelihood, need to add an outfielder. Ideally, that's someone who can play center field. That's obviously not Brantley, who at this point is essentially a DH. But I, I do think that you want to bolster, and this is why I mentioned Jock Peterson too, you want to find ways to bolster your outfield. Yeah, 100%. And you know, I think this is going to lead us a little bit into our trade discussion. But to me, the best case scenario for the Blue Jays is they acquire uh, a, a center fielder, yeah. a left-handed hitting or switch hitting center fielder who is at least um, a slightly above average, if not a plus defender there, which allows George Springer to shift into right field and better preserves him. And that's not going to be easy. But I'll let you introduce the trade discussion before we dive into that. Well, I, I, let's go there right now. I think that's the perfect way into it because really, you know, there's a lot of things that the Jays can contemplate with trades. They are wide open because they have surplus of catching. So, you know, you have Kirk, you have Moreno, you have Jansen. That allows them, doesn't force them, but it allows them to consider a lot of different things. So, yeah, I mean, let's let's dive right in. I mean, I, I totally agree. The two things that, you know, you'd probably... You know, every team obviously wants controllable starting pitching. That's a given. Um, the Jays could use that. And I think for them, particularly when you look at Lourdes and Teo potentially hitting free agency in 12 months time, you not only want a player for 2023, but there's an opening to consider beyond that. So where, when you look at that situation, where does that lead you on the trade front? Well, I wrote this at the end of the season and, you know, I've had some conversation or two since that has led me to believe that it's at least something that's going to be considered is that you just look at the Blue Jays and the Cardinals and the way that they match up and the Cardinals have some outfielders that they could potentially trade from. They're going to have a needed catcher with the retirement of Yadier Molina. And there just seems to be a a kind of a need for need fit there. Now, you know, I, I think Dylan Carlson makes uh, a a bunch of sense for the Blue Jays, switch hitter, good defender, some offensive upside, certainly a guy who's going to be fit, a a fit from a control standpoint for a number of different years. He's not going to be super expensive just yet. So he fits from a payroll constraint situation too. And, you know, the Cardinals can sort of pick from the Blue Jays catchers and the Blue Jays can make that work, right? I, I think that the Blue Jays' mindset right now with their catchers is that they're prepared to go into next year carrying all three guys on the big league roster. It's very obvious that that's not the ideal scenario. It's not maximizing the three players that way. But the the fact is, if they don't do that, the, the, they have to make a good trade. And to me, if you can turn, and probably I would guess one of Alejandro Kirk or uh, Gabriel Moreno into a young controllable center fielder for an extended period of time. That's a really interesting way to transform your roster in a way that addresses a number of different issues, both short-term and long-term, uh, and gives you a chance to be better immediately. I, I think it's such an interesting fit. So much so that I'm, I'm basically going to piggyback off of your answer <laughs> and, and, and uh, take it on as, as my own answer here for the trade part of our discussion here i'll throw out an honorable mention later but i do think it makes sense to start with the cardinals and dylan carlson's a really interesting name honestly i am maybe more intrigued by lars newpar and what he was able to do as a rookie this past season he's a right fielder so 
you know, the fit is not as clean defensively, but he is a left-handed hitter. His barrel rate was off the charts. As a rookie, he was striking out at a better rate than league average, as in striking out less often than your average major league hitter, walking 15% of the time, which is way above league average. So he's got good read on the strike zone, real power. Uh, It's a small sample, but I mean, it's also telling these numbers are not... You can't fluke your way into that kind of barrel rate, into that kind of strikeout rate. So I, I'm very intrigued by Newbar to the point that, you know, if you're talking about Moreno for Newbar, might just do that. Now, do the Cardinals want a rookie rookie? Um, you know, it, is it more Kirk for Newbar? Might think about that. You know, like it's it's tough to contemplate trading someone like Kirk, who's obviously such a good hitter, but you have to give us something to get something. And I'm really intrigued there, and I'll throw out Tommy Edmond too. Is just kind of a wild card here because, you know, you have a switch hitter who's an elite defender, and he could give you insurance behind Bo. He could give you an option at second base. He could give you an option. He's played some center field. So Tommy Edmond's also intriguing. I think for those very reasons, the Cardinals probably value him very highly. Um, whereas the outfield is maybe an area of surplus for them. So I think that St. Louis Toronto connection is really interesting to keep an eye on. Yeah, and Newbar is really interesting too because he has played some center field. And one thing that you could potentially do with him is you make him the George Springer backup, right? The guy who can play 25, 30 games in center if you need it, uh, who can play center field twice a week to rest George Springer a little bit and help him maybe transition into eventually uh, a move to right field, but you stagger it, maybe push the full-time move back to 2024 or something along those lines. So uh, I do like Newbar. Um, I wonder too, if maybe there is the potential to expand it, if the, you know, if the Cardinals do trade one of the outfielders, maybe you pair uh, Teoscar Hernandez or Lourdes Gurriel Jr. with one of the catchers back. And then maybe it's a, uh, maybe it's Edmund, in the Tommy wow. Edmund in the deal as well. Like I, I just think that there are a lot of potential fits yep. there in a number of ways that there is some room for creativity, but it also depends on how much both clubs want to be transformative in their trading as well. Yeah, exactly. Because the, the scale of trade that we're talking about here is pretty massive, right? Like for the Cardinals, you look at it from their standpoint and it's like, Replacing Yadier Molina is a big deal. That's going to be one of their big offseason priorities. It's not a position they've had to really think about that much for, you know, 18 or 20 years. And so that's something that they're going to presumably explore all kinds of options, starting with Wilson Contreras and going down the free agent list, exploring other trades. It's not like the Blue Jays are their only option. So, you know, that's interesting for them. And then for the Jays, like if you're Ross Atkins, trading away Kirk or Moreno is a big, big decision. You have to be very, very convicted if you are going to make a move of that scale that what you're getting back is absolutely worth it and is going to make this team better in 2023 and beyond. Yeah, for sure. And you know, part of, uh, again, not to ham- uh, hammer too much on this part of the discussion, but you know, one of the pieces with Alejandro Kirk is that he's still in the zero to three phase of his salary scale. So he's still extremely financially efficient and the Blue Jays need that on their roster. You know, Danny Jansen is also, you know, very quietly two years away from free agency. You know, the the, the runway is starting to end with Danny Jansen unless there's some type of extension there. And, you know, you look at Danny Jansen's unfortunate injury history, you know, he's he's missed time every year. And 
are you comfortable handing the reins to Moreno uh, for an extended period of time if something happens to Danny Jansen? Now, you can't trap yourself with these what-if scenarios because that'll essentially paralyze you. But I, I do think that has to be a factor there. And you know, what are you doing to ensure there's some protection there either at AAA or you know, do you do something else uh, with, uh, you know, maybe sign a, a veteran backup catcher uh, and then, you know, maybe have Moreno uh, as as a third guy. You're just carrying a different three catchers, but you're able to maybe utilize him a little bit more behind the plate than if Kirk's still on the roster. Right. And, and I do think, too, it's also a situation where the Jays can turn to other teams around baseball, whether it's a team with a surplus of pitching or I'll throw another team out here as far as a potential match for catching. But I do look at the Pirates. I do look at Brian Reynolds, left-handed hitter. He has played center field. He started slowly this year, but ended up having a really good season. He's got three more years of club control. So, you know, is there a structure there where, you know, does Reynolds for... Now, the Pirates are probably a team that's more inclined to take on a Moreno, if they could, because they can withstand some growing pains. So is there something there, or is that too much? Because that's actually a lot for the Jays to give up. Six years of one of the top prospects in baseball for three of a very good outfielder. I mean, I tend to think that the Jays might need something back to balance the scales. Whereas for with the Cardinals, maybe there's a bit more of a, of a natural fit given the window of team control that we're discussing here. I'll throw one other thing, one other consideration with the Pirates is that with both Ben Sherrington and Steve Sanders there, I feel like there have been a number of instances where you see potential deals there that kind of make sense for both sides in terms of them matching up. But I feel like these two front offices might be a little too similar to one another in how they value players. And I think it could be difficult for them to end up making a trade because I think they'll they'll sort of see the same values and one side to the other won't be able to find that mismatch that leads to a trade. And so I feel like that's, Yes, I, I I love Brian Reynolds. I think that that's a great fit. I feel like, and I, you know, maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I feel like it's it's hard for those two front offices to find a match together in a trade. If I said he was a left-handed hitter, pretend I said he was a switch hitter because he's a switch hitter. <laughs> but either way, the point is that he's he's a really good player, and there are a lot of opportunities that they can look at, even smaller scale, right? Like you know, the catching one is is the big one, of course, but. I don't know if someone has interest in a Rymel Tapia, you could think about that. Um, you know, he's probably going to be non-tendered anyways. I, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, you know, Whit Merrifield probably has earned, given the way he finished the season, a chance to to play some significant time for the Jays in 2023. But second base is not at all resolved, I would say, when you look at the combination of Espinal, Biggio, and Merrifield. So you've got some different things that you can do. And one way or another, I mean, they're clearly going to be making some trades in the course of the next few months. Yeah. One other thing I think is interesting. I'd be curious to see what happens with the Detroit Tigers and where, which direction they end up going. I think Joe Jimenez is a guy we talked about a fair bit at the trade deadline. We were convinced that the Jays and Tigers were going to match up on a deal there. Uh, they didn't end up, that didn't end up happening. And, you know, the Tigers kind of held to, to help put on every, anyone who wasn't uh, a rental for them. Uh, but they're going to have to sort of pick a direction. Joe Jimenez is someone that the Blue Jays 
did quite a bit of work on and try to make some inroads on to, to acquire. Uh, and I wonder if maybe that's a thread that they're able to pick up this offseason and, and maybe complete. Well, it's an interesting one. I think we figured it out here, Shy Ross Atkins, <laughs> Mark Shapiro, you're welcome. I mean, just listen to ACL. You've got your whole offseason plan. I mean, that seems pretty good. We did that in about an hour. That's great. Yeah. I think, you know, all the meetings that they're spending time is we just making the process more efficient for them. That's, that's so. exactly right, to use some of their uh, preferred words there. But, um, but no, this has been fun. Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. So hopefully everyone listening enjoyed. Send us your suggestions as well. Um, I'm sure that we'll have... Lots more names that kind of pop up as the winter continues, starting next week at the GM meetings where Shy and I will be covering off all of the action uh, from Las Vegas, where the Jays will be beginning their offseason business. So we'll have you covered there. Um, thanks in the meantime, of course, to our producers, Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade for putting this all together and their patience this week and every week. And thanks to you for listening. Thanks as well to our sponsor, Miller Lite, the original light beer for bringing you at the letters every week. And we'll have more content for you coming up next week. So stick with us on the podcast. And until then, thanks for listening to at the letters.